Like, this is your clue, BJ. It's kind of like your time, man. No, it's still kind of your time. No, don't, don't mind us, BJ. No, you're good, BJ. You just, you just take your time, man. Yeah, yeah. Y'all, y'all may be seated. Let me pray for us, and I'll hand the pulpit over to BJ. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. You want me to preach? That okay. Just kidding. Let me pray for BJ. God, thanks for bringing BJ back to us and uh, just all the preparation he's done for this revival. God, I pray that even now, God, that he would hide behind your cross and that each of us, God, would uh, be different than what we came in, that we would each either take a step to you, God, or you would continue to sanctify us. And so use this man uh, in all of our lives uh, this, this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I do want to thank you, Palace Chapel, for inviting me to come back. I've joked with uh, lots of people and thought, and your all's church must have uh, had a, a huge transition of people over, from last year to this year and that you all invited me to come back. They thought, man, they, they must not have uh, had, had as many people there this year that heard me last year, but it, it's a great honor uh, to be back. I was thinking about my seminary days. I began seminary at Southwestern Baptist Theological in Fort Worth, Texas, and I had a, a professor of an evangelism class that was required uh, required course, and he used to say that if you can have revival, it isn't. And I, I've said that to Todd before, and what he meant by that is um, we don't have revival. When revival happens, it has us, and that's because revival in the truest sense of the word is something that only God can do by the powerful working of His Holy Spirit. And there's one dynamic of revival that is characteristic of every great revival that the world has ever known. Uh, all the way back, uh, you can track it to Acts uh, chapter 2, or from there, the, the great Irish revivals, the, the first great awakening here in our country with um, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And the, the one mark of revival is repentance. That, that's the thing that unites all revivals for all time, is that there is an outpouring of the Spirit in such a way that people are broken and contrite before the Lord, and they repent of their sins before a holy God, and they receive all the grace and the mercy that God has for them. That's why we, we don't have revival. It, it's something that God does in us and through us. And in that respect, I just want to use this as a launching point uh, into our text and into our sermon this morning, is to simply ask that you would pray, God, what is it that you want to speak to me? Uh, A sermon is always first for us, myself included, before it ever is for someone else. Uh, you and I both have a very natural, fleshly tendency to think, man, so-and-so really needed to hear that. Uh, gosh, I wish they were here listening to that. Um, but God wants to speak to us and, and to uh, present ourselves with a posture of humility before the Lord to say, would you show me my sin, is a prayer request that God loves to answer um, because He will get the glory for that when we ask God, show me my sin. This morning we are going to begin in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 14. Now, this is Paul writing. Uh, Most historians would say that Paul is uh, in Rome in Acts 28 at the time of the writing of this letter. Uh, He spent two years in a Roman prison awaiting trial. Uh, An early dating would put this between 57 and 58. A later dating would put this letter in A.D. 61 to 63. And so Paul is in prison. Keep in mind, it's very important for our context as he writes what we are going to read this morning. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This morning, uh, as Todd has asked me to preach on the five outcomes Christian life, we are talking about um, spiritual intimacy, intimacy with God. And so our our big idea or theme this morning that we are going to explore from this text is that intimacy with God always means union with Christ. You cannot have intimacy with God without being found in Christ. And so lots of people talk about their relationship with God. Every religion under the sun will talk about a relationship or some sort of being in relationship with God, whether it's personal or you know, through whatever their religious practices are. Everybody in, in the world's system of religions has some concept of God and me in relationship to Him. Christianity is unique among all the world's religions in that there is no intimacy with God apart from relationship with Christ. And so we see Paul here then um, presenting to us his relationship with God through Jesus. So intimacy with God is found in union with Christ. And, And union with Christ is an old doctrine. It's been around for a long, long time. Um, Puritans and Reformers and the Apostles with Paul himself explored what this means. So to be united with something is to have two separate things that join as one. Uh, The way the New Testament gets after this is we could say, where is Jesus right now? Ask yourself that question. You don't have to shout that answer out, but where is Jesus? This connects us to the doctrine of the Ascension, right? Jesus' disciples, after He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, saw Him raised into heaven where He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. 
So if you have children, six, seven, eight years old, I have four kids, um, you know, you get these questions, why can't we see God? Where is Jesus today? He was raised bodily as the first of our own resurrection, and He ascended in glory to the right hand of the Father. And so Colossians 3.1 says that He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Where are we seated right now? Well, we're at Powell's Chapel in Powell's Chapel Road in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Close? Close. Yes, in that sense, physically, that's absolutely where you are seated. But what does Paul say concerning where we are seated? Ephesians 2.6, where are you right now? You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, you and I don't think like that. But this is exactly what the doctrine of the union of Christ teaches us. Where are you? You are hid in Christ. And you are with Him, seated with Him in the heavenlies. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2.6. So we could explore further what union means. I want to look at what Paul talks about concerning union with Christ in Philippians. But this is what we are getting after, is our intimacy with God is bound. It is inextricable from our union with Christ. So the Bible uses two expressions to describe our union with Christ, that we are in Him and that He is in us. And there are three passages in the New Testament that bring all of that together, both Him being in us and us being in Him. John 6.56 is one, John 10.4 another, and 1 John 4.13 if you're taking notes. Those are three passages that say that both Christ is in us and we are in Him. Now, where Paul takes us concerning our intimacy with God through our union with Christ is what does union mean for us? So if this is true, as God presents it to us in His Word, that we are bound up with Jesus Christ and He is in us and we are in Him, then then what are the evidences of that in our lives? So I present this to you both as a reality and as a challenge. This is the reality of what your life is like because of Christ in you. Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory. And it is a challenge for us. So, three things then, and these are our three points this morning. Christ is our prize, Christ is our power, and Christ is our purpose. So if we are in Christ and He is in us, then He is our prize. Look at verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Christ is our prize. When we are united to God through Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ is the greatest value that we have. And and this is exactly what Paul says. Compared to Jesus, everything else is as lost. You see both past tense and present tense in verse 7 and following. Whatever gain I had, past tense, I counted as lost. 
So think about some of the accolades and the accomplishments in your life. Think about your resume. If somebody were to sit down with you for a job interview and say, why are you qualified? And you go back through, what? Your history. Your employment history, your education history, the things you've done well in business or in whatever vocation you have. You go back and you say, here's why I'm qualified now because of all of this. And and that's what Paul's doing in his own mind before Jesus. He's saying, whatever gain I had, and, and Paul has already given us that at the beginning of this chapter. He, he gives us his resume. He says that concerning his life before God, that he has more confidence than anybody else because he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the smallest, but the very first king that ever came to Israel was out of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is his ethnicity. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. This is his, this is his education. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. This is his passion. So before he knew that Christ Himself was God, he was going zealously after rooting out all that he thought was heretical to the claim of divinity. And so he persecuted the church to say that I was zealous for God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now he's not saying I'm perfect, but where every sin had to be accounted for under the law, I made sacrifice. Witting sins and unwitting sins. He did all that he was supposed to. And whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. This is past. Then you see present. Indeed, verse 8, I count present tense. So don't worry about your past accomplishments. Where do you find great satisfaction and a sense of identity or accomplishment now? Maybe things aren't going well at work, but you've got all your ducks in a row at home. Yeah, my boss is cantankerous. I can't stand going in, but man, things are really healthy and really good with the wife and the kids or the husband and the kids or the spouse and the grandkids or the neighbors. Things are going really well for me right now. And Paul says, I count, present tense, everything as loss. And he continues, and this is the ground, this is the reason. This is the reason he can go back, this is the reason he can be present in counting everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So what Paul does is he takes a ledger, and in one column he says gain, and the other column loss. And, and he goes through everything that he would put as gain. And, and we do, whether you've ever done it physically or not, we do this, right? We, we think about all that is valuable to us. Our home, our possessions, our friendships, our relationships, our skills, our abilities, our personalities... You know, if you're into the Myers-Briggs, you know what your personality is and you cling to other people that are just like you and your personalities. Man, I'm an introvert and those extroverts scare me. Man, I'm an, int- I'm an extrovert and I don't know what to do with those introverts. And so you know, start to think about your personality and you start to, to ledger this up. These are the things that I find valuable. I love outgoing people. can't stand outgoing people. You know, and, and so we start to think in these terms. And, and we have our ledger gain, 
Our team is doing well this year. I'm a West Virginia Mountaineer fan. Our motto is, we'll get them next year. It's, so, so it's future hope that we put next year, again, and, and we go through the list. And Paul did that. Paul was doing that. And, and then what he does is he, he scratches out the top and he puts one name in the, the gain category. And then he scratches out gain over here and he puts loss. And the one name in the gain category, gain category, is Jesus Christ. And, and compared to Him, these things are lost. Being candid, there is much enjoyment and pleasure and value in these things. These things are all created by God, right? They're good gifts. Terrible masters, but good gifts. But it's in comparison. And that's the issue for Paul, is that in comparison with Jesus as my prize, everything else is loss. Now what he says about this, then concerning Christ, count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. So this isn't abstract arguments for Paul. He's not uh, teaching us from a classroom. He's in prison, in Rome, writing, and he has experienced great loss. He's looking at this in a mirror. And he says, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish for the purpose of gaining Christ in order that I might gain Him and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness. And that's what's at stake. What we have in Christ and what makes Christ of great value, the pearl of great price, the truth, in the field for us is who He is and what He has done for us. And, and Paul takes us to the law here. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so as Paul drives us into the law, he's saying that you cannot be right with God by the works of the law. That's Romans 3.20. It's Galatians. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so as Paul drives us into the law, he's saying, think about everything that's good in your life, compare it to Jesus. Now think about everything that Jesus is for you. He has fulfilled the law. Every jot and tittle. Those are old words. Smallest marks of the Hebrew language. That every jot and tittle, every part of the law did not pass without being fulfilled in Christ. And He died. This is the, the double work of Christ on the cross. And this is, this is very and vitally important for us concerning prizing Jesus as our greatest treasure is that Jesus did two things for us. Jesus took all of our sins, most of us, have some sort of concept of that, but He also gave us all of His perfection. So that when God looks at you, not only does He see your sin covered by Christ, but He sees all of Christ's righteousness, all of His perfection covering you. 
So your sin is covering Christ. His righteousness is covering you. We, we talk about the Gospel in shorthand when we say that Jesus lived the life that I could not live. And He died the death that I should have died so that by faith and trust in Him, I might now have life everlasting. Shorthand for the Gospel. And it's essential that Jesus lived the life that you could not live. If, if you and I do not tremble before God's law, one of two things are happening. Either we have a very low view of God's law, or we have a very high view of ourselves. We either think that God's law is not that strict, that He's grading on a curve. Now, you're not a murderer. You're not an adulterer. You're not a homosexual. You're not a fornicator. You're not cheating on your taxes. Sure, you've got a little bit of anger and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness towards somebody that slighted you or wronged you. But in comparison to these other folk, nah. So we, we diminish God's law. We lessen the strictures, the requirements of God's law, which is perfection. Which is why James says if you've broken one letter, one letter, You've broken it all. You and I don't think about each other that way. Or at least not ourselves personally. We, we lower the standard. Or we exalt ourselves, right? We think about ourselves more highly than we ought. We think we're doing a better job than what we are. And so Paul, when he looks at Jesus as his treasure, he does so because... I might be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law because He knows that it doesn't. Before the law, I am condemned before God. The law does three things, right? It holds us under guilt. It holds us under condemnation. And it holds us under a curse. And in Christ Jesus, no guilt, no condemnation, no curse. And so he, he says that He is my prize. And this is what makes it valuable. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the West Virginia State Fair uh, comes into town every, every year at the same time in Lewisburg, West Virginia. And I, I have a tradition. My dad, since I was four years old, has been taking me to the draft horse pulls of the West Virginia State Fair. It's always the last Friday of the State Fair. They have these big Clydesdale horses that pull a weighted sled as far as they can in competition with other teams. I know it sounds riveting. You're thinking to yourself, you want to make the trip next year to see the draft horse pulls. I've been doing it since I was four years old, minus two years. And so one by one, I've been taking my kids to the, the horse pulls of the state fair. It's now known as Horse Day with my four-year-old son. Horse Day! Wake up at the crack of dawn, travel down there. The West Virginia State Fair is... It is a sociological event, all right? Um, books are written on this kind of thing. I, I have to refrain from taking out my camera to take pictures of uh, the number of mullets that you will see at the West Virginia State Fair. <laughs> you know, it's business in the front, party in the back. And, and you would think that that thing has gone out of style. It hasn't. It hasn't. Come on out with me to the State Fair. Uh, I, I try to win prizes. One of the things that attracts me, and it certainly attracts the kids, are the little games. You know, you throw the dart, you pop the balloon. I consider myself 
basketball player. I feel like I've got a good shot. So last year, I won for my niece this raccoon doll on the basketball. Put down a dollar. I shot one shot, made it, got the prize. And so this year, and all the other kids that were with us said, win us another prize. They remembered. They, she still has the raccoon. So I put down 20 bucks. And I told the guy, I'm going to shoot until the money runs out. And I'm just going to take as many prizes as I can. I'm just going to keep shooting. You tell me when, when I'm done. I put down my 20 bucks. And he said, okay, here's the ball. And he, he lined them up. And I started shooting. The first one was hard off the back of the rim. The next one, front of the rim. And I thought, I've just, I'm locked on now. I've got the front of the rim. Every shot from that point on. And I went through the $20. I put another five down. I'm doing it again. Shot another round of shots. If I'd had an ATM handy, I would have cleared out the checking account. I could not make one. And, and what would be the value of that prize? Well, at Walmart, probably $1.50. At the state fair, at that point, it was $25, bucks and I still didn't have the prize. Right? The value is seen in what you're willing to pay for something. That, that's what determines the value, right? I collect baseball cards, used to. I have, I have a, a, a safe full of them. What's the value? What somebody is willing to pay for it. Nothing else. It's a piece of cardboard. And, and the value of your life is what God was willing to pay for you. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, you are not your own. And the price was the very blood of His Son that He willingly laid down for you. That's the value of your life. And then Paul looks at Jesus and says, why would I count as anything more valuable than Him? Anything. He is my prize. Everything as loss. So I say that this is a reality for us and it is a challenge. It's a challenge, practically speaking, in what do you have in your life that you are holding on to like this? Is it your children? or your spouse, or your career, or your reputation? What what do you have in your life that you are gripping like this? What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. If then you received it, why would you boast as though you did not? God calls us to hold His good gifts, your spouse, your children, your career, He calls us to hold these things like this. That's what Paul has done. That's what God calls us to do. And in that sense then, piggybacking on 1 Corinthians 4-7, not only are we to hold our lives and our things like this, but we are to say thank you. I'm just giving you two points here under Jesus is our prize. What does this mean then? Rubber meets the road means I hold everything like this and I say thank you constantly. Humble people say thank you all the time. Prideful people say thank you to no one because it's a right. It's an entitlement. It's what they deserve. It's what they worked for. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why would you boast as though you didn't? Christ is our power. Look at verse 10 and 11. We're going to roll through this. Verse 10 and 11, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. 
Christ is our power. Paul says that this is, this is the drive of my life because Christ is my prize and my worth and my value to the point that everything is rubbish in comparison to Him. I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul says in Ephesians that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is in us because we are in Him. You are, are not a powerless, defeated people. No matter what the world tells you, no matter what you, the, the lies of your flesh tell you, we have power against, and we'll talk about this later tonight uh, in Galatians 5, but there are three great enemies to your soul. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3. to The world, the flesh, and the devil. And against all three, the power has been broken. Jesus has defeated death. He's defeated the one who had the power of death, this is Hebrews chapter 2, namely the devil, and the power of sin is broken in your life. You are not a slave to your sin. And so Paul says that this is my aim, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, and that I might share in His sufferings. We have power against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we have power for, through Jesus Christ, Holiness. So if the power of sin has been broken in your life, then you have been given power by the grace of God to obedience. So the law condemns, the law holds over us a curse, and the law presents to us condemnation under the wrath of God. Jesus has paid for it all. Jesus has fulfilled the law. So then, what place does the law have for the Christian? The law, the third use of the law, as the reformers talked about, is that I might know how to simply live a life pleasing to God. I have been freed from its curse, from its condemnation, and from, from guilt. So because I'm freed for that, what do I do? I obey the law. I strive to obey the law. I'm free to do it. I'm free to obey without fear. The illustration is, is told, and I've looked up information on this, true story concerning the Golden Gate Bridge being built. I think I may have shared this with you all last year. Act surprised and think it's the best thing you've never heard before, if, if you remember it anyway. But when the Golden Gate Bridge was being built in the 1930s across the San Francisco Bay, men were falling to their death. The engineer that was responsible, Strauss, for the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge um, he enacted, at the time, some of the most progressive safety, uh, you know, safety laws for the construction crews that had ever been used before. Hard hats became mandatory. Um, but what they, they did at a certain point was they erected a net under the Golden Gate Bridge. It, it spanned out 10 feet on both sides from what they called the roadway underneath where the workers were essentially tightroping on the steel. Up until the point that the net was put up, they had had more than a dozen workers fall to their death. So when the, the net went up, you would have expected more people to have fallen because of this, the, there's no more fear, right? We fall, we're not going to drop into the bay and die. And the reality is that less people fell. And, it, and if you're wondering the reason why, well, here's the principle. When you set your eyes on something and you fix your gaze on that, 
That's the thing that you're headed toward. And because people were tightroping the, the metal so concerned about falling off on one side or the other, what did they do? They fell off on one side or the other. But when they were set free from their focus being on this thing, and they lifted up their heads, they stopped falling. And, and that's what the grace of God through Jesus Christ has done with us concerning the law. So that because of the grace of Christ, we're actually free. Our heads have been lifted. And what do we end up doing? We end up obeying the law. We don't want to commit adultery. We don't want to cheat on our taxes. We don't want to backstab and, and gossip and slander. Because God, it, it, He has freed us from the curse. And we want to please Him. We want to live for Him. This is... To give you a biblical precedent here, this is exactly what Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what did that do? Grace has appeared. Verse 11, 12. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. So we've been set free and we have power now against the world, the flesh, and the devil and we have power for obedience and holiness and righteousness in our life. And what is unbelievable here um, is that Paul could say that I might share in his sufferings. Like We would give the amen to that I might know him, to that I might experience the power of his resurrection, but to share in his sufferings? How is it that Paul can say that apart from future hope? That whatever I experience in this life by way of suffering is only a tool and an instrument in the Redeemer's hands for my good. That's it. That God knows, I know what is pleasurable for me, but only God knows what is profitable for me. And, and, and the fact that God would use suffering, and He did in Paul's life, as a tool to loosen his grip, that Paul could say that this present suffering is incomparable to the glory that awaits. We have a gentleman in our church, 43 years old, who is in the last stages of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. He has a wife and three small children. And he has experienced suffering, and it has brought him face to face with the things that he has counted as valuable in this life. Paul says, it has been granted to you, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, it has been gifted to you, not only that you should believe in God, but that you should also suffer for His sake. And so Paul says that I would share in his sufferings. So, application, and then we're going to do last point in wrapping it up here. Christ is our power means that we embrace our weaknesses. We're not trying to present ourselves as powerful and strong to each other. We're not trying to one-up each other. We actually embrace our weakness. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. That I rejoice in my weaknesses because I know that when I'm weak, He is strong. His grace is sufficient. You and I live in a society and we have the air of putting our best foot forward and presenting ourselves as independent and as strong and as needing no one or nothing. And that is not a biblical reality. It is not. 
you only take the next breath because God has granted it to you. And so we embrace our weakness because in it we see His strength. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. If Jesus is our power, then we're not pulling from reserves that are found deep within us. We're looking to cross, to, to Christ and Him crucified. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You become like that which you set your eyes on. The thing you're constantly focused on is what you become like. You focus on money and wealth and your retirement, you become wrinkly and green. Right? You, you, you take on that which you behold, the image of. And so beholding Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Christ is our purpose. Verses 12 to 14. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal. What you hear here, what you hear here is active, deliberate, intentional effort on Paul's part. Now he does that because he says, not that I am doing this on my own, but Christ Jesus has made me His own, right? I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me His own. So the foundation of that is who I am is a blood-bought child of Jesus Christ. I am no longer condemned. I am a freed man or woman in Christ. And because of that, I press on. It's active. It's purposeful. Paul isn't coasting. He isn't drifting. He hasn't flipped it on autopilot and say, well, I'm saved. I made a decision when. I was baptized when. And so now it's just let life happen. No, forgetting what lies behind the past is the past. I'm pressing on in hope for what He will be. In, in hope of what God is making Him. I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One commentator says the prize is Christ Jesus. So what is the prize? It's Christ. And Paul strains forward toward that goal. So if Christ is our purpose, then why do we work? Why do we attend church? Why do we watch the things that we watch on television or at the theater? Why do we listen to the things that we listen to? Why do we post the things that we post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? Why do we marry? Why do we parent? Why do we join a church and serve it and participate in its activities and submit to its pastors? Why do we listen to sermons? Why do we come to worship? Why do we do whatever it is that we do. Paul answers that question definitively and affirmatively for us in Romans chapter 11, verses 36. Verse 36. All things are for Him and through Him and to Him. You, as a Christian, prizing Jesus Christ, finding power in Him, your purpose 
for your work is that God would be honored. John Calvin said the only real Christian work is work done well. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, you work with all of your heart as unto the Lord. It, it radicalizes, I go to work to get a paycheck so I can really enjoy life. I go to work to make money so I can get, a, can get away from everything and everyone else and head to the mountains or head to the beach. This, this flips the world's understanding of why we do the things that we do that are us-centered on Jesus Christ. It's all for Him and through Him and to Him. So your work is purposeful. God has given you the job that you have, the ability that you have to do that job, and then the blessing of provision through it with the paycheck, all for His glory. And you're good. We attend and serve churches because God has knit us into His body. It's not to, to build our own little fiefdoms and kingdoms. So we serve expecting nothing in return. If you serve expecting something in return, then it's not for Christ. For from Him you have your reward. This, again, this is who we are and this is a high ideal for us. This is a challenge for us. Matt Emmons was... Um, head and shoulders, the best uh, rifleman in the United States heading into the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. And going into, uh, he had already won a gold in one event, going into another event that he was a shoe-in. Um, he was so far ahead in the point standing that coming into his last shot, all he had to do was hit the target, anywhere close to the bullseye, and he was going to win gold. Uh, you can watch on NBC, even still, a, a one-minute segment of Matt Emmons' last shot with the gold in hand. And, and he shoots, and, and you hear it. He, he shoots a shot, and then you hear this chatter behind him. It's a one-minute video, this buzz. And then he looks up, and he looks behind him, and he looks over, and he puts his rifle down, and he turns, and he shrugs his shoulders. What Emmons had done was he had, it's called a crossfire, and it's extremely rare in competition shooting. He was in lane four. He shot into lane three. And he hit three bullseyes in the wrong lane. And it dropped him to eighth place. He received a score of zero on his last shot, and he did not medal when all he had to do was hit the target. When Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, when He has set you free from the law, when He has become the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price in your life, then He is the reason. He is the reason why you seek to be a husband or a wife or an employee, or an employer, or a student, or a churchman, or churchwoman, or a servant, or a member, or a worshiper. It is all for Him. It is all about Him. See, we do a lot of the right things, hitting the wrong target. And God has called us as His people in His Son to make 
His name and His fame and His glory known. So that in everything we do, God would be honored. So I simply ask, in closing, would you pray and ask God to show you if there is anything in your life that you are prizing above Him, that you are finding power in other than Him, or that has gotten you off in your purpose for everything that you do. Let's pray that together. Lord, thank You for Your Word. God, I simply ask in the stillness of this moment that You would speak to us, Your people.